0: Text for today from which my assignment comes is Psalm 23 as we continue in our series 23 where we are talking about the greatest 23 of all time, Psalm 23. The scripture says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And this is David's ode to the greatness and faithfulness of God as he looks back on life from the other side. I just want to encourage somebody tonight. You're going to eventually look back on what you're going through from the other side. Can you say amen? Is that your testimony from the other side of that thing? Matter of fact, verse number four is the most popular verse in the psalm, right? And it says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not camping out, not staying there, not gonna have this problem in my life forever. Eventually, I'm gonna to get to the other side of this thing. And David is looking at life from the other side. And the portion of the text that I want us to focus in on today is verse number two again. And remember what it says: He makes me lie down in green pastures. And I want to talk to you from the subject and acquired taste acquired taste let's pray father in the name of jesus would you minister by your power and by the holy spirit to every heart in jesus name i pray and everybody said you may be seated ever try something and not like it but then you keep trying it and eventually you like it i mean come on can we just be honest for a minute here Nobody ever tastes alcohol and goes, oh, that's delicious, the first time. The first time you taste alcohol, it's like, especially if you're a kid, like the first time I ever tasted beer was like, that's disgusting, right? And yet you taste it, and you taste it, and you taste it, and eventually you acquire a taste for that thing. Sadly, most of our acquired tastes are for things that we should not have taste for. That our first reaction is usually the right reaction, but we keep doing it until we dull our senses and eventually we wind up acquiring a taste for things that are wrong. But I want to talk to you about acquiring a taste for something that is much, much more suited to your life, much, much more important to your life, and that is the taste for righteousness, for righteousness. And as a second text I want to draw your attention to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 6, where he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they should be filled or shall be filled. As we come to Psalm 23 and verse 2, we know by now, if you've been here for the last few weeks, that the theme of verse number 2 is blessed rest, that the promise being offered is that much-needed rest That we all long to have for our weary and overburdened souls. It's one thing for our body to be tired. You get a little nap. It's another thing for your mind to be tired. You know, rest your mind a little bit, focus on other things. But it's a whole nother level for your soul to be weary for your soul to be tied. Weary from the fight. Weary from the spiritual tug of war and the battle behind the scenes that is taking place for our souls. Weary from the battering of life and all those emotions. Soul sorrowness. Soul stagnation. Soul sickness. It's the worst kind of weary that we can endure. David spoke about it often. Matter of fact, one time in Psalm 42, he said this, Why are you cast down? Oh my soul, and why are you disquieted within me, hoping God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. I love that part. For I shall yet praise him. Even when our soul is weary, even when our soul is tired, God still promises that we're going to get to the other side of that thing. For yet shall I praise him. God gave me a example, an illustration in my life of what a weary soul feels like. And it was a long time ago when my kids were young. They were 5 and 8. And we had gone on a couple of cruises, but we had never gone out of a cruise from New York City before. And so we were excited about this because no flying. But That's the worst part of going on vacation is you got to schlep to the airport. And, you know, it's like, you know, you got it's an extra six hours, you know, onto the trip. And so I was excited about this one because we'd just go to the New York City port, get right on the ship, and cruise. We'd be going away. And um, we had these six huge bags of luggage i mean giant size the kids were young so you know when the kids are young you got to bring like every toy imaginable with you because god forbid they don't have toys on vacation right and so you know and you know how it goes dads who deals with the luggage we do Right. And so, you know, the luggage is all I mean, these are just giant sized pieces of luggage, a couple of big, giant duffel bags. And and I'm schlepping them. It's August, you know, upstairs from our house into the garage and back and forth. I'm going and we couldn't even fit it in our minivan. We had to borrow the church van. And so um, we borrowed the church van. We got all this luggage in there. And, and you know, I'm I'm thinking to myself, all right, I can deal with the luggage because the the worst part of vacation for me is lugging the luggage. I hate it. I can't stand it, right? And so I'm thinking to myself, we're going to get to the, you know, the port. The driver is going to pull us up right in front of the port somebody's going to come over, take our luggage for us, because we had like, you know, that kind of package where you don't touch nothing. And I thought, this is great, man. It appears you know, in your room type of thing. And then we're going to be cooling off, you know, in the pool on the luxury liner. Did I mentioned to you it was August 95 degrees? And when we got into the church van, the church van's air condition was busted. And I was already sweating from the luggage, you know. And I'm thinking, all right, I can deal with this. I'm trying to be in a good mood because we're going on vacation, you know. I'm trying to be in a good mood even though I'm sweating from the luggage. And we get in the van, and it's like just just brutal in the van. And I'm like, but we're going to pull up to the port, and the guy's going to come. He's going to take our luggage, and we're going to be in the pool before you know it, so I'm going to deal with it. Well, I didn't factor in the New York City traffic. And we could not pull right up to the port. The closest the driver could get was eight blocks away. And so we are eight blocks away, and I got my wife. She's 115 pounds soaking wet, you know, right? I got my wife there, my kids, five and eight. We're in New York City, so my wife's got to hold on to the kids. And we got six large, giant size I mean, humongous, like Paul Bunyan-type luggage, right? And I'm like, how am I going to get all six of these down to the port? Well, I just became luggage man. I mean, I I put one big bag of luggage on over, you know, the strap over this shoulder, the other strap over. I stacked these two on each other. I stacked these two on each other. And I just started pulling. Well, my wife is holding the kids' hands, and they're holding their little Nintendos. And we're schlepping, you know, eight blocks down. You couldn't even see me. I was covered in luggage. I looked like one giant suitcase, you know. And then my son, to boot, five years old, Daddy, can you carry me? I didn't respond too well to that. I've got to be honest with you. And everybody's wondering why dad's in such a bad mood on the family vacation. Well, he's the only one sweating over the six large luggage bags while everybody else is prancing around having a really good time. And God spoke to me. He said, this is what an overburdened, sick soul looks like. You can't find yourself. You're, you're weighed down. You're, you're laden down with all of the luggage of life that gets on the inside of you. And you know what? When we come to this particular verse in scripture, God promises us something that to me is a promise that we all need and a promise that we can't get any place but in the shepherd. Rest for our overburdened souls. And the only place you can get that is in the shepherd of our soul. And to get this promise across to us, David uses the sheep shepherd metaphor because, as you know by now, sheep have to be made to sleep. They have to have the perfect conditions in order to sleep. And one of the things that they must have in order to sleep is they have to have their hunger and their thirst satisfied, just like us. And one of the big reasons why our souls are sick is because we have acquired a taste for the, from the, for the wrong things by drinking from the well of worldliness. And so our souls are disquieted. It's sort of like what PC preached on last week, Pastor Chris Lewis, who came in and shared. He shared about the woman from the well and how she was drinking from the well of worldliness. And her well that she was drinking from in order to satisfy that that longing that is on the inside of everybody that always longs for something and you you have to fill it with something was broken relationships. And so she bounced from one broken relationship to the next broken relationship. Maybe your well is something different. Maybe your well is is food or maybe it's alcohol or, or maybe it's weed or maybe it's drugs or maybe it's a job or maybe it's money or fame or success. The list goes on and on, but the more we drink of those wells, the more we want of them despite the fact that they leave us empty on the inside. You would think after experiencing emptiness from all of those things, we would eventually say, this is not it. But there is a well that can satisfy There is a well that can take away the hunger pains. There is a well where every thirsty person leaves satisfied. There's a well that fills the empty spaces and places. And that well is what the shepherd of our soul talks about. In the greatest sermon he ever preached. It's the most popular sermon. The Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be filled. Notice when you drink of the well of righteousness, you come away blessed and filled. Blessed, yes, with all the ways in life that we want to be blessed, but blessed in the ways in, of life that are the most important ways to be blessed. Blessed with rest in the midst of life's storms. Blessed with a calm that knows it's going to be all right and that you're traveling through and you'll eventually get to the other side and look back and brag on the goodness of God. Blessed with a rest that says, it is well with my soul regardless of my circumstances. Blessed with a rest that is so full on the inside that it doesn't need to drink of the sinful things that leave us empty. The promise of rest comes to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, there are two kinds of righteousness that the scripture talks about. And really, the word in the original language bears out multiple meanings. The word in the original language is dikaiosin. And, 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 and it describes two different things, two different righteousness. One righteousness that is imputed to us, a righteousness that is fixed on us. It's a righteousness that is unearned, unmerited, and received. It's a righteousness that was purchased for us on the cross by Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. This is the righteousness that is unearned. This is the righteousness that Jesus exchanged for us. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. What does that mean? His right standing with God. So that way when God looks on us, when we are in Christ, he doesn't see us in our faults and our failures. He doesn't see our sinfulness. He sees us in Christ standing. He sees Jesus in us when he looks upon us. That's the righteousness that is imputed. It's fixed. It's not earned. It's not behavior dependent. You can't do anything to earn it. You must receive it. It is imputed to us, fixed upon us. Made righteous. This word speaks to me because I'm Italian. Made. When you are made, you can't be unmade when you are Italian. Made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Imputed. Fixed. That's that kind of righteousness. But then there is another righteousness. And it's not God's work. It's, it's our grind. It's not God's work. It focuses on our walk. It's the kind of righteousness that relates to our lifestyle. And in the Greek, it refers to integrity, virtue, purity of life, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. This is not God's gift. It is our grind. It's not God's work. It is our walk. It's how we live for God. It is us staying clean from the contaminants of the world. It is coming out from among them and being separate. It is remaining unspotted from the world. It is a lifestyle that honors God. And here's the thing. Living right produces rest and sin sickens our soul let me say it again: living right produces rest, but sin sickens our soul. There is soul sickness even amongst the saints, because sometimes the saints sin too much. A sinning saint doesn't that sound like an oxymoron to you? A sinning saint. It should like a jumbo shrimp like an instant classic, like like a small crowd, like old news, like pretty ugly, sinning state. They're, they're juxtaposed to one another. They, 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 they shouldn't be in the same sentence. And when we live in sin and persist in sin, our souls become disquieted. See, I'm going old school on you today. Because nobody preaches about right living anymore. You come to church and never, ever feel a conviction anymore. You can come to church and just get patted on the back and your hair stroked and boy and everything like that. But nobody ever talks about living right anymore. And as such, we have saints that have disquieted souls. There's unrest on the inside of them. And by the way, did you know that, that sheep are naturally dirty animals? They're nasty. They stink on their own. The only way that sheep can get clean is if the Savior comes and clean them because they can't clean their own fur. They can't wash themselves. They're not like, you know, birds. Birds take baths and cats and dogs lick themselves. But but sheep just they, they wait for the shepherd to clean them up. And I believe that as David is writing this verse, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He gives me blessed rest. I believe David is reflecting on how God cleaned him up when he got dirty with Bathsheba. I believe David was reflecting on what happened in his soul when he gave himself to sin instead of living on to righteousness. I believe David was reflecting on his own experience on how living right at first gave him rest, but then how sin sickened his soul, and you remember David's story, don't you? You remember his, his rise to greatness. His rise to greatness was, was heralded. I mean, David was an overlooked shepherd boy when Samuel the prophet came to the house of Jesse, his father, to anoint Israel's next king. He had seven other brothers. He was the eighth child, and his father called all seven in but didn't call in David because he didn't think David was king material. And you remember Samuel tried to pour the oil from his horn over all the other brothers, and the oil wouldn't flow. Can I just tell somebody, never worry about what's happening in somebody else's life. Because if it's your blessing, can't nobody stop it. And if it's their blessing, you can't stop it. And if you worry about you, God will put keep your blessing on reserve for you. And when the oil is supposed to flow in your life, it will flow. God saw his faithfulness and God kept the oil reserved for him. So that's what living right does. It keeps your blessing reserved for you and he comes in and Samuel anoints him in the presence of his family and his family doesn't accept him as king because they send him back out to the field to to be the runt of the family and you know the story the next thing that happens is his brother his father says bring your brother some lunch on the battlefield and we talked about this this little small errand became the the door to big things in his life and he goes out there on the battlefield with a good attitude despite what's happening to him and when he goes out to the battlefield he volunteers to Face Goliath and against all the odds, he defeats Goliath because when you live right, you defeat stuff against all odds. You know, a lot of times God is looking bad because saints are making it out like they got everything in order and like God didn't do what he said he was going to do. Like they, you know, they're reading their Bible like they should. Coming to church like they should. Putting God first like they should. And then stuff don't happen. They're like, I don't, I don't understand. I don't, I don't understand. Listen, when you, when you live right, you defeat stuff that is against the odds that you shouldn't defeat. It gives you a, what I call a confidence. A confidence in God instead of a double-minded opinion of God. You remember when David went out to the battlefield? He said, the same God that delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. When you live right, you have confidence in God. You know that God is going to come through. But when you don't live right, there's this, the Bible says, a fearful waiting for judgment in our lives. Did you know that living right pays and promotes? Living right pays and promotes. First Timothy chapter 4, verse number 8 says, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. In other words, if I live right, it doesn't just get me rewards when I get to heaven. And by the way, living right doesn't get you into heaven righteousness that is imputed to you when you make Jesus the Lord of your life gets you into heaven, you can actually have sinning saints who make it into heaven. So then why should I live right? You should live right because the rewards you receive in heaven are dependent upon what you do down here on earth. But notice he said it's, it's profitable. Godliness is profitable in the life that now is. He's a bodily exercise profits a little bit. In other words, some people look good on the outside, but they nasty on the inside. See, I'd rather be fat and holy than thin and nasty. Woo! I know y'all can't handle this tonight. I see. I'd rather be fat and holy than thin and nasty. Now, thank God you can have both, right? Thank God. Some of y'all, some of y'all, uh, fat people need to look at them. Thin people and go, "You nasty!" No, I'm just like. <laughs> thank God, you can have both. What is he telling us? He's saying, we work so much on making sure everything outside looks good. We make so, so, so do all this, spend all this money, all this time, all this whatnot, and don't have time to open the Bible. Don't have time to fit God in for church, but have time for every little other thing. If we would be as meticulous with the word of God as we are and taking care of ourselves, we'd get somewhere in God. David, because he... Lives right. He experiences God's rest. And now he's on the throne, and he realizes why he's on the throne. He's on the throne to be an extension of God, to to lead the people in the ways of God. And his first act as king is to find somebody who cannot do anything for him in return, Mephibosheth. Jonathan's son, who's lame in both feet and poor. And David brings him into his own house, into his own palace, and lavishes the blessings of God on his life. And here's what happens. When you are living right, you're generous. You want to be generous. not, Not for recognition, but to please the Lord. And David is reflecting on all this, on how all this time that he was living right, he had this rest, even when Saul was hunting him. When Saul was hunting him, Saul couldn't get him. You know why? Because when you're living right, your fight becomes God's fight. And when your fight is God's fight, ain't nobody can get you. And so, he's reflecting on this, this rest that he has. But then it happened. David sinned with Bathsheba, and his soul got sick, and he lost his rest. He stopped drinking from the well of righteousness and instead he took the sip from the well of worldliness and his soul became disquieted. Be careful where you sip. The health of your soul is at stake. But I believe that you can acquire a taste for righteousness in a world that is always telling you to drink from its well. And I believe you can get to the place in your life where you just got to have more righteousness and more righteousness and more righteousness. And that nasty well of the world is just disgusting to you. You don't want any of that stuff because you've acquired the right taste. And I want to give you three quick ways to develop and to acquire a taste for righteousness. Number one, this is simple stuff. Be in the right place. Let's go to the story of David and Bathsheba. Second Samuel chapter eleven, verse number one, says, "And it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David." By the way, if you're going to be a king of anything, you got to be ready to do battle. A lot of people think that when you're successful, there's no battles. <laughs> the battles just get bigger. The battles just get tougher. When you're a king, you got to be ready to go out to battle. And then David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked onto the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. What time of the year was it? The time that kings go out to battle. What did David do? He stayed behind. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. He lost sight of who he was and what his responsibilities were. Have you ever heard of people being in the wrong place at the wrong time? Have you ever been guilty by association? You didn't do it, but you were there when it went down. Have you ever heard your parents say, nothing good happens after 12 o'clock? Have you ever seen the commercial? It's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your kids are at right now? David wasn't where he was supposed to be. Can I tell you how the enemy gets you to drink of the well of worldliness that sickens your soul and steals your rest? He lures you to the wrong place. He drags you away from where you're supposed to be and puts you where you ain't supposed to be. And then he gets you to take a sip. Child of God, I say this with all the love I have. You ain't supposed to be in the bar. You ain't supposed to be in the club. You ain't supposed to be at the party where everybody is drinking just for fun. You ain't supposed to be on vacation with your girlfriends and your boyfriends just to drink and tell dirty jokes and flirt with one another. You ain't supposed to be somewhere else on Sunday or Saturday night other than God's house. You ain't supposed to be in situations with the opposite sex that are not your spouse. You ain't supposed to be on the computer late at night or your phone late at night. You ain't supposed to be watching that crazy music movie or listening to that crazy music or reading that crazy novel. You ain't supposed to be at the casino. You ain't supposed to be in other people's business. You ain't supposed to be dating people who don't love Jesus. You ain't supposed to be. And when you are in the wrong place the devil will offer you a sip of worldliness. Sick in your soul. And you'll be sipping with a smile on your face. Oh, look at me. I've understood how grown people look forward to getting drunk. Aside from people who have addictions, I understand that. But, but, like, people like, I remember when my son was playing baseball. We would travel all around. All the parents would be so excited. Oh, I can't wait to get there. Come on, let's all go meet at the bar. And these 50 year old people <laughs> drink until they're sloppy. Think it is wonderful. Losing their mind, not being able to... I'm like, what are you trying to run away from? I like my mind. I like my life. I want to stay in my right mind. I don't need to escape nothing that I'm going through. I've been drinking of the well of righteousness, and I like it. The devil will get you in the wrong place, cause you to sit. Be, be in the right place. If David had been where he should have been, His soul would have never looked like me carrying all those bags of luggage. Number two, if you're going to acquire a taste for righteousness, you've got to feed yourself the right food. Look at the story. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed, walked out on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now, beholding and seeing is two different things. You can't, you can't help but see pretty people. Right, you walk around life, you're gonna see pretty people. You're looking at one right now. I mean, I mean, you just, just have as you come to church. That's what goes on. But it's different to see and to behold. You ever watch men, Christian men? Is there something wrong with your neck? Why, why did your neck just move like that? There's the difference between seeing and beholding. And David didn't just see, but he, he beheld that she was beautiful to look at. So David sent and he inquired about the woman. And someone said, is it not Bathsheba? Interesting how her name is Bathsheba. The devil will just serve it right up for you. And you ain't where you're supposed to be. He'll just let you sit. The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now David should have been struck as soon as he heard Uriah the Hittite. Because if you don't know it, Uriah was one of his best friends. Was one of his mighty men. Then David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her for she was, for she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house and the woman conceived. So she sent and told him and said, I am with child. Uh oh, run, run. Can't come that one up, run, run. <laughs> what happened? David fed his soul the wrong food because he let it in through his eyes. You feed your soul through your eyes and through your ears. And if you feed the, your soul the wrong stuff, guess what happens? It gets poisoned. And by the way, eating food happens with your eyes first, right? Any good chef makes it look nice. Everything that looks nice ain't nice. Trust me, i never seen a dish of pasta that didn't look nice to me, but it ain't that nice to me. Every cookie I look at looks amazing. I'm, I eating that thing with my eyes and so on and so forth. And my wife is culpable because she leaves it right on the counter instead of helping me out and putting that stuff away. We eat our eyes, our soul gets fed with what we let in through our eyes and what we let in through our ears. And here's what happens. If you feed your soul the right food, you make the right decisions. If you feed your soul the wrong food, listen to me, it impairs your judgment and you make wrong decisions and wind up sipping from the well of worldliness and getting a sick soul. David was not where he was supposed to be. So the devil cooperated with him, provided him with some soul sickening sights and David drank, became drugged and made a really bad decision. Not only did he call the woman, but knowingly he slept with his best friend's wife because he fed his soul with the wrong food. His decision-making ability was impaired. Listen, what you feed your soul will either impair or impart wisdom to you. It will either impair or impart wisdom to you. And and you need wisdom in order to make good decisions because your life is the byproduct of the decisions that we make. Don't blame nobody for your life. I understand that some people are more disadvantaged than others. And some people have to be more intentional about making more and more good decisions just to get where certain people start from. But don't blame nobody for your life. Your life is the result of the decisions that you make. And if you want to change your life, you just need to change your decisions. Because when you pile up good decision after good decision after good decision after good decision after good decision, decision, what eventually starts happening in your life is you start experiencing good things in your life. And when you make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, what eventually happens is you reap from those bad decisions. That's why God said, I lay before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. You, You have to choose How sick did David's soul get real sick? Because he not only slept with his best friend's wife, but then to cover it up, he had him killed. David was a hit man. I mean, you have to get real sick. Here's the thing about sin. You've heard me say this before. It'll take you further than you want to go. Cost you more than you're willing to pay. Keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin is nothing to play with. And when we when we sin, it's like we're walking away from God. He doesn't leave us, but it's like we leave him. And when we walk away from the Lord, we lose all of the things that our soul needs to be healthy. We lose the joy of our salvation. We lose the presence of God. We lose the peace of God. We lose the confidence of God. We lose all of those things. And then what happens is we play act. (laughs) We need that. What is the right food? The right food is the word of God. What did David say in Psalm 119? He said, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, your, your soul needs the word of God. It needs it in order to work. It needs it in order to, to thrive. They, uh, Jesus said, "Man shall not live by every every uh, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God." Why? In order to acquire a taste for righteousness, we have to feed our souls the living, abiding, eternal, life giving, all powerful Word of God. It washes us when we get dirty. It corrects us when we stray. It reminds us of who He is, who we are, and what is ours. It builds us up so we are fit for the fight. It strengthens. Our faith so we can remain steadfast when hell comes to attack us. It teaches us right and wrong so we don't get confused by culture in a truth uh, in a world of relative truth. It renews our mind, it feeds our spirit, it empowers us to stand against the enemy, it fills our heart with hope, it reminds us of what truly matters in life, it teaches us about our Savior, it guides our step, it lights our path, it cleanses our soul, and it helps us not to sin against God. You need the word of God in your life. A lot of confused Christians because they don't have a regular diet of the word of God. David's soul is sick. Now here's what I love and this is what I want to close with. David did all this. How many of you, come on, let's be honest, would have given up on David? David. Come on, you know you would have. Somebody talks bad about you, you give up on them. Somebody sleeps with your spouse. That's what I'm saying. Amen. But God doesn't give up on David. Amazingly. And this is the third thing that I want you to have. If you're going to develop, acquire a taste for righteousness, you have to have the right perspective of God. I want you to know that no matter what, no matter what well you've been drinking of, whether it's the well of righteousness or the well of worldliness, God loves you and never gives up on you. In Jeremiah 31, verse 3, the Lord appeared to me, he says, of old saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, have I drawn you. Anybody remember the disco song back in the day, everlasting love? Nobody. Nobody. Y'all were always in the church? Come on, you had to remember that song. I know you do. Come on, you talk about everything else in church, but when I ask for something, you stay quiet. (laughs) Everlasting love. A love that never gives up. A love that never stops. A love that always endures. A love you can't outrun, out sin or outshun. It's a love that loves you when you're a prodigal. It's a love that loves you when you're not where you're supposed to be doing what you're not supposed to be doing. It's a love that loves you when you don't love yourself. It's a love that leaves the 99 and comes after you if you're the only one. It's a love that comes to you when you've given up on yourself. It's a love that fights for you when the devil has his grip on you. It's a love that stands by you when nobody else will. It's a love that picks you up when you fall down. It's a love that blesses you when you don't deserve it. It's a love that draws you in when you've turned your back on him. It's a love that lays down his life for you. It's an everlasting love. It's love. It never changes. God's love is not based on your behavior or my behavior. There's no correlation between God's love because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so God doesn't give up on David, but he sends his prophet to David, Nathan. And Nathan tells David this story about this one guy who had everything and this other guy who had only one little ewe lamb. And by the way, did you know that you're God's little ewe lamb? Augustine said this, God loves each of us as if there was only one of us. Think about that for a second. And Nathan tells him the story and he says to him, this one guy had everything, 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 everything. And there's this other guy who was a good friend of his. And he only had this little something. And the one guy that had everything took the little something from the guy that only had that one thing. And then he says this to David. He says, what do you think should be done to that guy? And here's what David says. He says, as the Lord lives, he's going to get spiritual now. Please. Please. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. You know when you know your soul is sick? When you are a max judgment person. When you are ready to throw the book at somebody and yet you expect no consequences in your life. You know what I found out? When you drink from the well of righteousness, you aren't a max judgment person. You are a max grace person because you know that but for the grace of God, there go you. And so he says to me, he says, what do you think should be done? David says, throw the book at And Nathan looks at him, he says, you the man. You, and this wasn't a like, you the man. This was like, you are The man. You're the one I'm talking about. By the way, God will never talk to you about somebody else unless they are your child, your spouse. God ain't talking to you about my business. God ain't talking to you about your friend's business unless it's to help them, unless it's to encourage them. Like we everybody's Holy Ghost. Got something to say about everybody. Listen, when you're worried about everybody else, your life is usually a wreck. Work out your own salvation, the Bible says, with fear and trembling. And he says, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Nathan, I anointed you to be king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. By the way, I never understood why people are envious of what other people have. Never understood that. We serve the God of the universe. All the gold and silver is his. Cattle on a thousand hills is his. I don't need to worry about what you got. Because I serve God who's got everything. And if I'm not satisfied with what I got, if my heart is right, I just go to God. I say, God, can I get that? And the Bible says this is a good pleasure to, to give me the kingdom. So as, as I seek first the kingdom of God, His righteousness, He'll add everything that we want onto us. I don't worry about nobody else. As a matter of fact, when, when a blessing comes somebody else's way, I said, that's my dad. If He blesses them, I know He's got a blessing. Anybody a parent, if you bless one kid, what do you have to do to the other kid? You got to bless them too, right? And you got to make sure if you give this kid a blessing, you also give this kid a blessing because otherwise kids get mad at each other and think daddy and mommy love this one more than the other one, right? He said, I would have given you more. But notice the sickness of a soul that has sinned. It's never satisfied. That's how you know your soul is sick. When the more monsters eat at you and eat at you and eat at you and you're never satisfied. You have to have more and more and more and more and more. And I'm, listen, I'm not saying reject the things that God wants to bless you with. Don't, don't do that at all. But if you've got enough, the reason why God has given you that is to be a blessing. So receive it, God's touch it. God's trusting you so that you could pass it on to other people. Now it seems like he's about to throw the book at David. It seems like he's about to just... And there were consequences to David's action. There was fighting within his family for the remainder of his time as king and he lost his first love child. But you know what blows my mind? Solomon. And I was like, hold up, hold up, hold hold up, God. Hold up, God. Wait a second. Who was Solomon's mama? Bathsheba. Wait, 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 wait. Because, God, you blow my mind right now. God, I'm not quite understanding this. So, in other words, David goes out sleeps with his best friend. Get get ready, because some of y'all don't like the grace of God in other people's lives. Some of y'all want to see somebody punished forever. Some of y'all think that when somebody does something wrong, they got to pay for it. The rest, that is not the God of the Bible in any way, shape, or form. And so here's what happens. There's consequences initially, but then, but then they have another child, and this is Solomon. And from Solomon comes, guess who? Jesus! What? Are you kidding me, God? What am I talking about? I'm talking about getting into the perspective of God in order to acquire a taste for righteousness. The text says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Watch this, watch this, watch this. Do you know, in and around Judea, and specifically where David tended sheep, around the Bethlehem area, there were no green pastures that the place is dry and arid and stony and rocky. And the only green pastures that existed were the pastures that the shepherds went over to and ripped out all the rocks and took out all the stumps and irrigated it and planted seed and cultivated it and cultivated it and the work that it took to get a green pasture in that place was amazing. What am I telling you? I'm telling you that here's how good God is. Here's your perspective of God that you need to have is that God will take even your rocky places, even your messy places, even the places that you created for yourself and God will cultivate and turn and and irrigate and pull this stump out and pull that root out and God will turn it into a place of blessing. Why would you want to go drink anywhere else? Why would you want to drink of a dirty well when you could go to the God of the universe who takes even the rocky places and the stony places and the places the devil meant to take you down and turns them into a place that's a green pasture. Well, then here's what I need you to see. And I'm going to close with this. And don't leave because I want to pray for a couple people. Don't only have the right perspective of God to acquire a, a taste for righteousness, to know that there's, there's no other well. The disciples said, where else will we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. It's like crazy. Jesus, worldliness. I'll take worldliness Do we realize what we're doing not only have the right perspective of God but have the right perspective of blessing do you know why the shepherd has to make sure that the sheep have green pastures because when little lambs are first born they need a strong milk flow from the ewes and the only way that a hue can produce strong milk is if they have green grass in order to eat. And what's interesting is that this milk that flows from the mature sheep to the baby sheep is a type in the Bible of what God has done for Israel and in our lives. Because when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he brought him into the promised land, which is described as a land that flows with milk and honey. And here's what God wants you to understand, that you get to a certain place in your life. When you're drinking from the well of righteousness, where you realize that the primary purpose of the milk that God brings into your life, the primary purpose of the blessings and the goodness that God brings into your life, as you are mature in Christ, is to feed those who are infants in Christ, to pass on what God has given you to them, so that when God comes into your life and pulls away all the stones and irrigates with the presence of the Holy Spirit and you begin to experience that flow of blessings of God you come to the conclusion that there is no other place that you'd rather drink of and then you start taking that strong milk that God is blessing your life with and you give it into the lives of other people and all of a sudden they come away with the exact same conclusion why would I go anywhere else I don't need to go to the world to get this stuff I'm getting it from God. God's got the best milk. God's got the best blessings. God's got the best of everything. And this is what God is teaching us. That literally what God does is he walks into our place of bondage. And he takes us by the hand. And then he walks us into our promised land. Our place that flows with milk and honey. Come on. Stand to your feet. Let's give God some praise.